Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We are going to be taking a break of our walk through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be doing a a short about month-long series in the book of Psalms. And I have the privilege of, of leading the way in that. And as it happens, we didn't necessarily plan it this way, but it works out. We're going to begin with the first psalm of the Psalter, Psalm 1, as we just read. So let's get into this together. We are told regularly how divided we are in this country. And it does seem worse than ever, at, at least in my lifetime. To a large extent, we're no longer really defined as Americans, but sides are drawn up by whether we're male or female, white or of color, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, pro-same-sex marriage, pro-traditional marriage. And these sides are, are often pitted against one another, hostile to one another. It's kind of crazy what's happening. In my opinion, it's kind of sad what's happening. At the same time, it's easy to kind of be swept up into all of that. But then Psalm 1 shows up, and God reminds us that ultimately there are really only two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked, or we might say the the saved and the unsaved. When it comes down to it, those are are really the only two groups of people that, that really matter because whether you're male or female, rich or poor, white or black, that doesn't matter one whit when it comes to judgment day. Those things can't save you or condemn you. And that's what's beautiful about Scripture as a whole. And this psalm specifically, it's not that those things don't matter, but they matter far less than whether you are righteous or unrighteous, saved or unsaved, because that is a matter of eternity. Eternity. And Scripture has a very profound way of sort of smacking us out of our limited temporal focus and reminding us of what truly matters, the eternal. So today we're going to be looking at this very first psalm and and considering how it impacts both this life and the next. And ultimately, I hope we will find ourselves marveling in how it finds its fulfillment in Christ. So as we dive in, we we see in verses 1 and 2 that this division between the righteous and the wicked, this is really a division of influence. In other words, it's what's influencing us that divides us between the righteous and the the wicked. The, The righteous one is blessed because of what he is and what he isn't influenced by. And by the way, the the word translated blessed here really means happy, although Hebrew scholars almost universally agree the word should be translated happy. Some translators, some translations, most translations really avoid happy. They think it sort of connotes a shallow emotion. But blessed is, is no better. I mean, when you think of blessed, what do you think of? Probably something like hashtag blessed, which is just another way of saying God's hooked me up with a bunch of stuff that I'm really stoked about. But that's not what this is saying. 
There, there is a Hebrew word that is the word blessed. This does not mean that. This means happy in the truest, deepest sense. A soul-satisfying, lasting happiness. And we all want that. Most of what drives us is our desire to find happiness. How often do you choose things that you know will make you unhappy? Almost never. Well, you might say, well, I eat kale instead of ice cream sandwiches, and kale doesn't really make me happy. But I would argue back and say, no, being healthy and fit is what you think is really going to make you happy. So you, for, you forego short-term happiness, the ice cream sandwiches, in hopes of long-term happiness, being fit and healthy. It's, it's why we pursue the things of the world. It's why we sin. We think it's going to make us happy. We all want to be happy, truly lastingly happy. So how can we truly be happy? Well, verse 1 tells us it depends on our influences. Verse 1 says a happy person is someone who is not influenced by the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. So it begins with the negative. If you want to be happy, don't do this. This makes it clear it matters who or what is influencing us. It matters to our souls. We can't dismiss this. Quite literally, people, the world, will drag us down to hell. I have a, a friend who, after attending church for a decade with his family, a decade with his family, finally about a year ago, he claimed to have had a, a saving experience. And I, I was, you know, in his life, I was concerned about him. And I was happy to hear that. And I wanted to make sure he actually understood what the gospel was and how it applies to our lives. So I was spending time with him weekly, kind of reviewing that. The problem was this, this guy, he's this, you know, sort of tatted up skater with this gnarly upbringing. I, I, I bring up tattoos. I realize everybody in our society has tattoos now, but there's a difference between sort of like the hipster tattoo and like that's the real deal sort of guy tattoo. And he's the sort of real deal kind of guy, just this <laughs> gnarly upbringing, uh, horrible influences, and, a, and about a, a decade-long pattern of drug use. And at this point, he didn't really have any meaningful relationships in the church. He had his wife who was saved, which was great, and he had me. But then pretty much the rest of his life supported his sinful lifestyle, his friends, his music, what he listened to, what he watched. Basically, most of what he consumed and who he hung out with just constantly put him in the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. So guess what? You can probably see where this story is going. Whatever saving moment it seemed he had... It didn't really take. He, he, was, he just kind of started to hide his sin, I guess, kind of trying to convince us that he was saved until he couldn't hide it anymore. And then uh, a short while ago, just a couple months ago, he, he made a really stupid choice and almost lost his wife and his family because of it and really could have been far worse than that. Thankfully, though, the story doesn't end there. That seems to have finally been the catalyst that, that woke him up, and he seems to have recently truly committed his life to Christ. I, I, I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know for sure. But you know why I think it's genuine this time? is because he radically extricated himself from any and all worldly sinful influence in his life. Any relationship, any Instagram account that was having a wicked influence in his life, he just got rid of it. And it's making all the difference in the world. He truly seems to be like a new man. He's a living parable of how the influences in our lives determine whether we will follow the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. 
But we don't just have examples like that. Of course, we have Scripture itself. And you want to talk about how Scripture divides up people into two groups and what is influencing them. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is serious stuff. Just like my friend learned, and just like this psalm is reminding us, those people that, that you're hanging out with who are having a negative influence on you, that, that Netflix show you're watching, you know, you know you probably really shouldn't be watching it, those are influences of those who are dead in sin following this world, which these verses remind us is Satan's system that stands directly opposed to God and his word, just like we did before we were saved. That's why it says in James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Guys, I know this is, this is heavy stuff, but man, we, we cannot play around with this. God does not play around with this. He, he calls those who are friends of the world his enemies. I mean, the last enemy we ever want is God, I promise. Now, that doesn't mean that we retreat to a monastery in the wilderness to avoid being friends of the world. We are to be friends of sinners as Christ was. We actually talked about that earlier in the Gospel of Mark. But we are to be friends of sinners so that we can influence them by living and proclaiming the Gospel, not so that we can be influenced by them. And if we're honest with ourselves, we really know who's doing the influencing. So if it's not you you might need to rethink your approach to that part of your life. You will not ultimately be happy or righteous if you're being influenced by the wicked worldly system. So that's what the righteous is not influenced by. That's the negative. What about the positive? What is he influenced by? Verse 2, the law, the word, the Bible. In this context, the law referred to the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible where the law of God is extrapolated. But essentially, this is saying the righteous, the happy, are not to have their hearts and minds shaped by the world, but rather by the word. Not to have our hearts and minds shaped by the world, but rather by the word. Verse 2, it's the law, the word of God, that the righteous meditates on day and night. Notice, he doesn't just read it. He meditates, lingers, chews on it. And he does this constantly. The righteous, the happy, do not have a casual relationship with the Word. It's not a sometimes thing, when I feel like it, when I don't have anything better to do. It's constant, day and night. If the amount of time you spend on social media dwarfs the amount of time you spend in the Word, something might be off. The happy one lingers in the Word, digesting it, knowing it is the kryptonite to the constant influence of the world. Speaking of kryptonite, I'm sure most of you know, Superman, virtually invincible, but he's dependent on our sun. Without the sun's powers, he becomes mortal. So on this planet, he's in the peak of power, except for one thing, kryptonite radioactive elements from his homeworld, Krypton, that will weaken him and eventually kill him if he's exposed long enough. 
So knowing that, of course, Superman avoids kryptonite and he thrives in the sun. But what if he reversed that? What if he only got in the sun eh, occasionally for short periods and he spent most of the rest of his time around kryptonite? At the very least, he would be dangerously weakened and at worst, he would die. We're in the world. We can't escape its constant drumbeat in our lives, but we can combat it with the word. That's our strength. When we're in it only periodically for short periods and then we're consuming the world the rest of the time, we're like Superman choosing to be weakened and if exposed long enough to die. So this psalm makes clear if we're to be happy, if we're to be righteous, we must make the Bible absolutely central in our lives, both privately and corporately in church. That's, that's not really optional. It's a must. But it's not just something we should do. Like Superman, there are significantly wonderful results in our lives when we do that. In verse 3, we see three of these results. The first result of meditating on the word constantly is that we are anchored. As verse 3 says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. When we prioritize the law, the word, we're not like the seeds in Christ's parable that have no firm root and they're blown away, taken away by the influence of the world. We've been uh, redoing our backyard recently, planting various things, and one of the things we planted are, are uh, blue fescue, those sort of small round grasses you see in desert landscapes. And So anyway, bought some, planted a few in a row, just perfectly lined up, perfectly spaced, and within about two hours, our 110-pound dog decided that he wanted to eat one of them, and he just came up and whoosh, just ripped half of one right out of the ground. It, I mean, it was gone. I, I tried to put it back in. It didn't work. There was no recovering. I had to go get a new one. And yes, I was very angry, in case you were wondering. But we also, uh, in another part of our yard, we planted a, a small palm. It's going to be a while until it turns into a real palm. But man, this thing's solid. It, it is rooted. Duke isn't going to be able to come by and just yank half of it out. That's what this is describing. The one whose life is, is built on the Word will have deep roots with constant nourishment and refreshment that is not taken and uprooted by everything that comes its way. The second result of meditating on the word constantly is that we are fruitful. Again, verse 3, it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. The word works through our lives to produce fruit of eternal value. The world can only produce fruit of temporal value, but the word produces fruit that carries to eternity. That's how we should be spending our lives, investing in things of eternal value, and the word does that work through us. And the third result of meditating on the word constantly is that we prosper. Verse 3, in all he does, he prospers. Now, this is obviously not the prosperity gospel, meaning do this and you'll have all the health and wealth you could ever want. Although one who lives in this way will likely prosper in many ways temporally by having a life ordered by God's word. The focus here is not temporal, it's eternal. And the ultimate eternal prospering is receiving eternal life, which the wicked do not have. And that's the transition we find in verse 4. In verse 4, we move from the, from the results of the righteous to the results of the wicked, and that result is judgment. As I began saying today, this, this psalm just sort of smacks us out of our limited temporal focus and brings the eternal to the fore by reminding us the wicked are nothing more than, than chaff that the wind drives away. 
chaff are those, those worthless husks of grain that just blow away. They have no value. They're just discarded. Scripture reminds us constantly of the, the transitory nature of this life. For example, Psalm 144.4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Or in the New Testament, James 4.14, What is your life? This is what James 4 says. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, it might seem like the way of the wicked, the way of the world, man, that, that's what's up. That's what I really want. They seem to have all the power. They have all the fun. They have all the success. And Scripture just pulls the blinders off our eyes, reminding us this life, man, it's like the steam that comes off a warm cup of coffee in the morning. It's here and it's gone just like that. That's sobering, and it really exposes what the stuff and influences of the world really are. They're, they're a vapor, they're a mist, which should stun us into asking the next logical question, then what? Life is a mist, then what? And verse 5 answers that. Then what is the judgment? Scripture makes clear this life is not it. There is eternity to follow, but before eternity is judgment day. Every one of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives Thoughts, deeds, actions, motivations. And verse 5 clearly says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In fact, verse 6 not only says the wicked will perish, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is worked out for us in detail in, in Revelation, where chapter 19 of Revelation speaks of judgment day, beginning in verse 13. It says, And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yikes. Then chapter 21 describes the new heaven and the new earth where God destroys the old and makes everything new. And verse 4 says, the former things have passed away. As this psalm and all of scripture makes clear, the ultimate result of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked is eternal. Either eternal life or eternal death. And not only will the, the, the wicked not stand in the judgment, but like I said, the way of the wicked will also perish. Like I just read in Revelation 21, the entire world system will pass away, never to return. So we have the clearest of warnings here. Do you want to truly be happy, not, not only in this life, but for eternity? Then don't buy into the influence of the wicked, the world. Its guaranteed outcome is death. Rather reject that and follow the way of the word, the law, which leads to true happiness and eternal life. The choice really couldn't be clear. There's only one problem. You might be thinking, you just preached a law sermon. Do this, and you'll be happy, and it'll all work out for eternity. Do that, and you'll be sorry. But that's not us. We're not Old Testament law people. We're New Testament gospel people. The law's been abolished by the gospel, hasn't it? We're not under that anymore. We've been freed by the love of the gospel. I'm sure at least some of you must be thinking that. Law has really become a dirty word in our society today. We live in a time where we're doing everything we can to unhitch ourselves from any external authority or law, most certainly including God's archaic laws. Our only law, our only authority is us, me. No one gets to tell me what to do. I can live however I want, do whatever I want, be with whoever I want, have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want. Nobody gets to tell me otherwise. If anything gets in the way of human autonomy, it's the law. 
So we do everything we can to eliminate it or at least eliminate its influence. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And whether because of cultural influence or by a misunderstanding of Scripture, many in the church today have a negative view of the law as well, kind of establishing this antithesis between law and Christ. I think that's why so many Christians don't really know what to do with the Old Testament. You know, it's all that kind of law stuff. Where, where's the love, you might ask? And that's a really good question and, and one that we really need to take the time to answer because it's really essential to understanding the true faith. And the answer is Jesus. Of course, that's the answer, right? When, when my son was younger, we would do Bible study and ask him questions. His answer was almost always Jesus. He didn't... You know, he'd been around long enough to figure out, if I say Jesus, that's probably going to be the right answer. Well, in this case, Jesus is the answer, but we're going to go a bit deeper than that. Having a proper understanding of the law means understanding that law and love are not antithetical. They're actually symbiotic. And we find the fulfillment of this law of love in Christ, who then points the way for how we are to live in him. And that's essentially what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. So before we get into Christ and his fulfillment of the law, I just want to briefly address how, how I said how the, the law and love are symbiotic, not antithetical. And that is really found in verse 2 of Psalm 1, that word, delight. The happy man delights in the law of the Lord. That's why he meditates on it day and night, because it brings him delight. It's a total misunderstanding of the law to think that it was this code, this grumpy, graceless God of the Old Testament established until Christ, who is love, came along and abolished it. That is not true. Love was always at the heart of God's law, not only in the New Testament, but also in the the Old Testament. And, And by the way, we still do find the law in the New Testament. Christ's words, John 14, 15, Christ said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Christ said. True faith is not divorced from the law. The the sign, Christ says, that we actually are saved, that we're truly saved, is that we obey his commandments. We obey the law. But it's not just that we obey them. He says we obey them because we love him. We delight in keeping his commandments because we love him. We want nothing more to do than to please him by keeping his commandments because we love him. But that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, we find the same thing. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6, the so-called Shema recited twice daily by devout Jews, some of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And the words commanded that day were the law of God, which he says they're to keep out of complete and total love of him. Again, they delight in law because they love God. So the law doesn't go away because we're Christians. Rather, as Sinclair Ferguson says, love provides motivation for obedience, while law provides direction for love. Love provides motivation for obedience, while law provides direction for love. So we don't meditate on and keep the law simply out of dutiful obedience. We are to be obedient. We're we're told to do that. 
But the motivation for knowing and keeping the law is because we love God. We delight in Him and His Word. That's the motivation. But as Ferguson says, it's also the direction. Directionless love is fickle emotion. It has to be anchored in the truth. So the law, the Word, provides direction for our love. We don't just love. We don't just obey. We lovingly obey our God because we delight in Him and His Word. And that's why the law, the law and love are not antithetical, but symbiotic. I hope that can be helpful. And that leads us to Christ's fulfillment of this law of love and how he points the way for how we are to live in him. Now, you might have noticed multiple times I've intentionally characterized many people's view of the law as being abolished, but it was not abolished. I hope that has been made clear. Rather, it was fulfilled in Christ, and Christ himself said that in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's absolutely fundamental to understanding the Christian faith. The law has not been abolished, but fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled the law in four ways, which understanding that will help us understand Psalm 1 better. So first, Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying the law. Jesus fulfilled the law by obeying the law. Even if we believe that, that might seem a little bit off. I mean, we know Jesus was perfect. He lived a sinless life, but we don't normally hold him as such close partners with the law. Like I said earlier, the spirit of the age is, is human autonomy. If anything gets in the way of human flourishing, we think it's the law of God. And that's bled into the church And that it seems anyone who em emphasizes the law today, often you're charged as a legalist. Instead of law today, we say God loves us just the way we are. We're broken, he knows that, we know that, but praise God, his grace, he loves us just the way we are. There are a couple of things wrong with that, though. First, absolutely for sure, there has been legalism in the history of the church. But legalism is making extra biblical laws, you know, laws that aren't in Scripture, just laws you've come up with, but then holding people to them as if they are God's law. So a classic example, Bible, the Bible prohibits drunkenness, not, but not drinking. So don't condemn someone for having a glass of wine with dinner in the privacy of their own home. If you feel you shouldn't do that, then you shouldn't do that. But you can't make that a law for everyone else. That, that would be legalism. But not all law is legalistic. If you think so, I would, I would wonder if maybe you've actually read the New Testament. The New Testament is full of imperatives and exhortations telling us what not to do. It, it's full of them. So not all law is legalistic, but the second problem with replacing law uh, with, you know, God just loving us the way we are is that it's really just not true. Since the fall of Adam, God has only loved one person the way he is, and that's Christ. The way we are by nature, that's what put Christ on the cross, and when we say that, you know, I think we're, we're kind of trying to make God look good to the world and his love to the world, but I think that's actually reducing God's love. God's love is so much greater than loving us as we are. God loves us despite the way we are. And in love, he saved us, and he saved us to holiness. He didn't save us to remain in our sin. He saved us to holiness and righteousness, and we praise God for that. And part of why Christ is the only truly lovable person as he is is because he kept the law perfectly. Jesus is no legalist, but he is the law keeper. And the law was not irritating to him. 
He didn't keep it because he had to. It didn't prevent his human flourishing. Rather, in Christ, we actually have a picture of what a life of perfect obedience to the law actually looks like. We get to see how good it is for us, and we see that it is actually the pathway to glorifying and delighting in God the very purpose for which we were created. And all of this means not only did Jesus fulfill the law, but Jesus is also the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 1. He meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. Read the gospel. Scripture just fell off Jesus' lips constantly. And that wasn't because he was God. It was because as man, he delighted in the law because he loved the Father. And because of that delight, he flourished. He prospered. He constantly bore fruit. You just stop and think about that. Jesus is the most complete, most fulfilled person in history. He's the only person who ever actually loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of every day and his neighbor as himself. And the result was the most perfectly happy man ever. True, deep, satisfying happiness. And it wasn't despite the law, but it was because of his delight in the law of God because he loved his Father. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. He's the perfect fulfillment of the law. And he's the perfect fulfillment of Psalm 1. Second, Jesus fulfilled the law by teaching its inner motivation. It's interesting to me when people attempt to drive a stake between Christ and the law, because if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you would know not only was Christ not anti-law, if anything, he, he just seemed to ramp up the stakes. You remember in, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, it says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or a few verses later, verse 27, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Christ repeats the law. You know you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't, you shouldn't commit adultery. Many that day were probably thinking, I haven't. I'm good. But then he just raises the bar by saying, just, just being angry with your brother, that's the same thing. Lusting after a woman, that's the same thing. Because it's not just the external behavior that matters in keeping the law, but it's also the internal motivations. What drives the external act of murder? The internal motive of anger. What drives the external act of adultery? The internal motivation of lust. Now again, stop and think about this. Think about how glorious Christ is. Not only did Christ fulfill the law by obeying it externally, but he also fulfilled it by keeping it internally. The motivations of his heart were always perfectly driven by a love for God and his law, just like we read in Psalm 1. We really know nothing of such perfect, loving obedience. The, the holiness of Christ, both in his teaching and in his living out his teaching, is just astounding. Third, Jesus fulfilled the law by paying the penalty for lawbreakers. We often talk about the cross. Obviously, that's the epicenter of our faith. But the cross is basically shorthand for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In other words, as God, Jesus Christ took on a human nature, fully God, fully man, to live as our representative, 
Since Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, no person has been able to keep the law perfectly, but like we just finished addressing, Jesus did. And as our perfect sinless substitute, he suffered and died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins that, w- that would have taken us an eternity to pay. But as he is infinite, he paid for them completely on the cross. Then he died. He was resurrected as the God-man, conquering sin and death and offering eternal life to all who repent and believe in him. Or to stick with the theme of the law, we might say the lawmaker, God, became the law keeper, the perfect God-man, who then became sin by taking the place of lawbreakers as if he, the only lawkeeper, was the ultimate lawbreaker. He obeyed the law completely. He paid the penalty for breaking the law completely. It's all fulfilled in him. And fourth and finally, Jesus fulfilled the law by empowering us to delight in and keep the law through the Spirit. Jesus now empowers us to delight in and keep the law through the Spirit. Here's the deal with the law. You know this already. We can't keep it perfectly in our own power. Forget not murdering and committing adultery like we discussed. The law is summed up in part by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're not doing that, you have broken the law. Have you ever thought about that? If that's the summation of the law, if you're not doing that, you've broken the law. Can anyone here claim to have done that? You've loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't even mean for your entire life like we're commanded. I mean just for one day. Maybe even just one hour straight. We can't. I can't. No one can. We're, we're sinners by nature. That's why the Old Testament sacrificial system was established, because even though the Israelites were commanded to keep God's law, they couldn't do it perfectly, and death was the penalty. That's what the sacrifice of bulls and goats was all about. It wasn't because God hates animals. It was to make a vivid point. Sin is not a small thing. The penalty of sin is death, physical death and eternal death. And the constant slaughter of of animals reminded them that they were sinners worthy of death, needing someone to cover, atone, pay for their sins. And lambs could never do that once for all. That's why they were sacrificed over and over, pointing to the one who would finally come and provide that once for all atonement for his people. But this is the truly unbelievable thing. Not only was Christ that one, fulfilling the law, providing that atonement, but he now gives us the power to obey it through his spirit. The law didn't have the power to make us keep it, but Jesus does through the spirit. That's what it says in Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God not only justifies us through the cross, declaring us righteous, but he also sanctifies us, progressively growing us in Christ's likeness, growing us in holiness. And as we've seen, to grow in Christ's likeness is to grow in our delight of the law of God. And through the Holy Spirit, we're empowered to lovingly obey that law. Like I said, it's progressive. We still battle the flesh and sin even after we're saved. But we are now a new creation, no longer viewing the law as our enemy, but rather the way to true happiness as we are now empowered by the Spirit in us to keep it 
in love. It's all God's work, and it's absolutely astounding, and we praise him for it. Law and love. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.